lesson four, we explained one of the basic fundamental principles of Hasidic philosophy, and that is that God creates the world constantly. That creation is not something that took place 5,748 years ago, but God is constantly in the process of creation. The process of creation is constantly repeating itself. Because if God would stop for one moment from creating the world, then the world would not continue to exist. And that energy which is invested in creation, the godly energy which is invested in the creation, if that would be removed, extracted, for one instant, the world would no longer exist. This leads to another basic fundamental principle of Chabad, Hasidic philosophy, which is a deeper understanding in Hashem Echod, God is one. One of the very famous verses in Torah, which the Jew says every day in his prayers, says it a few times a day, these are the words which in addition to being words from Torah, have been sanctified throughout the generations that this is the verse with which Jews, martyrs, who died because they wanted to maintain their Jewish identity, because they didn't want to convert to other religions, when they died, this verse was the words that came out of their mouth, the last words that a person leaves the world with. The words of Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Hear, O Israel, God our God, God is one. From this verse we derive that in addition to the belief that one is obligated to believe in as one of the mitzvahs of the Torah in the existence of God, believing that God exists and God created the world, in addition to that is another principle of belief which is called believing in the oneness of God that God is one what does this mean? in other words there's only one creator to the world and there's only one authority to the world one could perhaps believe that there is a creator to the world but maybe there are other gods other creators there are others that have authority in controlling the world as there are some philosophies that believe that way so Jewish belief is God created the world and there's only one God. That is the simple interpretation of the word God is one. There's another and deeper interpretation that in God is one, meaning that God is one entity, He's one absolute entity, He's not made up of different parts. In other words, being that God is infinite, it is impossible to say that he has parts because the word parts by definition means finite the word part by definition means that this begins here and ends there and that's where another part begins and there's another part things that are finite are made up of different parts that which is infinite infinite doesn't only mean that it has no beginning and that it has no end but it's a different form of existence that has no parts and therefore, when we say God is one, it also means God is one absolute entity. He's not made up of parts. In Hasidus, 
it gives an even deeper explanation to what does it mean that God is one. And that is that not only is God the only creator, that there is no other creator in the world, not only is God the only authority that is in control of everything, and there is no other force of power that has any authority in controlling the world, but God is one means that God is the only true entity in the world. And there is no other true entity and true identity other than God. In other words, God is one means He's the only true existing entity. And everything else besides God is not a true existing entity. Of course, this needs to be explained. What does it mean that nothing else is a true entity? I mean, if you would say that everything in the world is just an illusion, an imagination, fine. We would say that God is the only true existence. And everything else doesn't really exist. It's only part of our imagination. But according to Torah and the basic beliefs of a Jew, of course the world is a true entity. God created the world. The first words of the Chumash in Genesis and Brashis is Brashis Baralakim. God created the world. That means that it's truth. When we do mitzvahs, we're taking objects like Tillin or Mezuzah or Ethrog and Lulav and we're performing a mitzvah. This is not an illusion. It's not an imagination. This is all part of truth. So what does it mean when we say that there's no true entity besides God? There is an entity. There is a world. Nevertheless, it's not really truth. What does that mean? And the answer is, this doesn't mean that nothing else exists besides God. It means that the true identity of everything in creation is actually God, not its own personal independent identity. To explain this further, there's a general principle that when you have two things together, one is a very powerful thing and the other extremely small and weak. The smaller thing is cancelled out by the powerful one. As in a famous expression in the Gemara and the Talmud, Shraga Betira Maya Hanile. Candlelight, midday, when daylight is, is there, doesn't accomplish anything. Which means if I take a candle outside in the streets, midday when the sun is baking, it doesn't accomplish anything. In fact, it appears as if it doesn't even exist. Unless you put your finger there, you won't even know that the candle has a flame. You don't see it. Now, it doesn't mean that the flame doesn't exist. The flame is there. The fire is there. The light is there. But the sunlight is so much more powerful, so much greater than this candlelight, that it's completely lost. It's as if it doesn't exist. It becomes totally insignificant. The same thing applies on an emotional level. If a person gets very excited about something, go down the street and they find a $20 bill. They're excited, they found a $20 bill. If 15 minutes later they're notified that they won a $20 million lottery, 
They're no longer excited about the $20. You won't find a person calling up his next-door neighbor and saying, Did you hear the great news? I won a $20 million lottery. And I also found $20 in the streets. The $20 that were found become totally insignificant because the joy and the excitement on the $20 million take over completely. And the $20, even though we did find it, and there's some level of excitement there, but it's totally insignificant. Or the same with aggravation. If a person's aggravated because he lost a button on his jacket, and then he, God forbid, finds out about a big tragedy, then that aggravation becomes non-existent. Not that it's really non-existent, but it becomes totally insignificant. So based on what we talked about in the previous lesson, that everything in creation has godly energy in it constantly. Otherwise it couldn't exist. That means that everything we look at has two dimensions. There's the physical dimension and the physical features of the tree or the chair. And then there's godliness within it. So the truth of the matter is that we don't see the godliness in it. We only see the physical features. But in truth, in reality, this is like daylight where the sun gives out very bright light and candlelight which becomes totally insignificant. So if I would say that God created the world and that happened 5,748 years ago but not necessarily that it's a constant process and not necessarily that God's energy is found within every detail of creation then the world's existence and the world's identity is quite significant. But if I say that everything in creation, whether it's a chair or a table or a horse or a tree, has in it godly energy, then it would be compared, the analogy to this would be like the small candlelight and the bright light of the sun where it becomes totally insignificant. That means that in essence, the tree doesn't really have its own identity. Its identity which is far greater than it, is the godliness which is within it. And that which we see, we only see because we're blind to see the other identity, the greater light. So to us it's significant. But in reality, the physical aspects and the physical features of everything in creation is totally, absolutely insignificant compared to the greater force and the greater power that's present at the same time. So this is what it means when we say that Hashem Elokein Hashem Echad God is one and He is the only true entity because the other identity is totally insignificant compared to its inner identity which is the godliness that's within it. To understand this even further how insignificant the physical identity is compared to its godly and spiritual identity which is in it, within it to understand this even further we can explain it in the following way this principle that when you have two things present at the same time or same place and one is far greater and more powerful brighter, bigger in any way than the other the smaller one becomes lost becomes cancelled out becomes insignificant that's in any kind of situation, even if the two things have nothing to do with each other, then the smaller one becomes insignificant in the presence of the bigger one. It's as if it doesn't exist. But to take this a step further, 
when you have two things, one which is extremely significant and one which is very small, very trivial, and they're both part of the same structure, then the small one becomes lost and doesn't even have its own identity, but it's only viewed as part of the larger one. To say, say this in simpler terms, for example, there's a halacha. When it comes to making blessings, everything has its own specific blessing. So there's a specific blessing that you make when you eat cake. Bore mine mezonos. There's another blessing that you make when you're eating fruit that grows on the trees. You make the blessing bore priha eats. There's a specific blessing for vegetables. Bore priha adama. And so on and so forth. If you're eating two things, you're eating a piece of cake and an apple, then you'll make two blessings. One blessing for the cake, bore minimizonas. Another blessing for the apple, bore pereits. Then there's a question in halacha. What if I'm eating a piece of cake, and in this cake, there is part of an apple in it, was baked as being part of the cake. So in certain situations, we're not going to the halachic aspect now. That has to be dealt with in halacha class with the rabbi. But we're just going into the basic concept that it is a possibility in certain situations if there's a small piece of apple within that cake that you only have to make one blessing. And the blessing would be bore mine mezona. And the principle is this is considered the ikka and a tuffle, which means there's one part which is the primary part and that's the cake, the piece of apple is considered tuffle, secondary. And therefore you only make one blessing. Now the question is, what does this mean? Does this mean that when I make the blessing on the cake, and I don't make the blessing on the piece of apple that's in it, does it mean that I'm eating apple without a blessing? No. But I'm not making the blessing on the apple. So what does it mean? It means that when I make the blessing on the cake, it includes the apple. But how could the word cake include apple? They're two different things. The answer is, in this cake, in this case, where the piece of apple is part of the cake, the apple is no longer identified as apple, but it's identified as part of the cake. So when a person makes a blessing over the cake, this includes the apple, not because cake includes apple, but because the apple loses its own identity and becomes part of the cake. And the same thing with other situations which are similar, that when two things constitute one unit, one is a major thing and one is something very minor, the minor thing loses its personal identity and now it becomes part of this major structure. So therefore, if we say that everything in the world has two dimensions to it, one is a physical object and its physical features, and the second is the godly energy that's in it. This is not only compared to the light, where you have a big, powerful light and a small light, because in that case the two things have nothing to do with each other. It's just two lights present in the same place. But in the case of the godliness within the chair, and the physical features of the chair, 
They're both part of the same unit, part of the same structure. But the godliness is one thing, and the physical features and the physical aspects is another thing. But they're both part of the same structure, part of the same chair. So if I would ask a question out of these two things, which is the major feature, or the major part of the identity, which is minor, of course the major feature is the godly energy that's within it. And the minor feature would be the physical feature, the physical aspects. So the physical doesn't have its own identity. It's considered part and parcel of the major identity, which is the godliness in it. The analogy to this would be the human body. A human being is also made up of two parts, the soul and the body. So here too we see the same thing, that the soul and the body become one in such a way that the body loses its own identity. It becomes part and parcel of the human identity. It doesn't have its own identity as flesh and blood. To explain this a little better, I recall once hearing a lecture, scientists discussing, this was many years back, there will come a time where there will be robots. What would happen if you'd want to use a robot to complete a minion? You have nine Jews, now you need a tenth one. Could you use a robot as a tenth person? It went into a very deep scientific discussion about a robot and what it is, and humans. The conclusion was that you cannot because he's not Jewish. But my question is, what would be the difference between a robot and a human being? And of course we all understand that a robot is not a human being. The difference is obvious. But my question is, how would we compare the connection, the combination of the soul and the body? How would that compare to the combination of the electrical energy and the robot and the metal? Is that connection the same or is it different? In other words, can we say that just like the soul activates the body, that's how electricity activates the metal, and just how the soul unites with the body, that's how the electricity unites with the metal, or is it different? And the answer is that it's different. In fact, the unity between soul and body is something very unique. There's nothing like it in the world. Someone asked a question, when you're talking to a person, who is the person? Is it the soul or is it the body? First glance, the answer that appears to be is, what's the soul, not the body. The identity is actually the soul. But the truth is, it's not really so. You can't say the identity of a person when you're saying he or she. When you're talking to someone and you're saying, you did this and that, you said to me so and so. You're not talking to the soul excluding the body. You can't say the identity you're referring to is exclusively the soul. It's not so. You see, and you realize the way people refer to others or to themselves, they're not referring to a soul excluding a body. On the other hand, you definitely cannot say the identity is the body. Because when you're talking to someone and you're saying you or he or she, you're referring to the flesh and blood excluding the soul. Definitely not. So would this then mean 
that when you're talking to a person, you're referring to the soul and the body? When you say he and she, you're referring to a soul and a body? That's also not true. Because then you would have to feel in your discussion that you're referring to something which is double, a soul and a body. When you're talking to a person and you're saying you, it's something which has a dual personality, soul and body, it's also not true. You feel that you're talking to one absolute identity. So what does this mean? The answer is, it is one absolute identity. That the soul and the body become one to the point that there are no two things. They're like one absolute identity. The soul is the life force of that identity and the body are the physical features of that identity. But there's only one identity here. In the case of a robot, for example, you can't say that the electrical energy became one identity with the scrap of metal. The piece of metal remains just what it was before, a piece of metal. But it has something else that's activating it. There's a force that's pushing it, that's activating it and pushing it in a certain direction. But the metal remains metal. In the case of the human being, the body loses its identity. It no longer is identified as flesh and blood and veins and bones, but it's identified as a human being. It became part and parcel of this identity. There's a story with the Alter Rebbe, the first Rebbe of Chabad, who was once sitting and had his grandson, who was the future third Rebbe of Chabad, known as the Tzemach Tzedek, was a small child sitting on his lap. And as he was sitting on his lap, he was stroking his grandfather's beard, and he was saying Zayda, which means grandpa. So his grandfather turns to him and says, points to the beard and says, this is the Zayda? <coughs> so the child says, no. Then he points to his eyes and says, is this the Zayda? So the child says, no. Then he points to his hand and says, is this the Zayda? And the child says, no. So the grandfather says to him, is Zayda? If it's not the beard, and it's not the eyes, and it's not the hand, then where is the Zayda? And the child didn't answer. short while later, the Altarebbe put his grandchild on the floor, and he walked out of the room. And as he's standing by the door, the little Tzemach Tzedek calls to his grandfather and says, Zayda. And his grandfather turned around. When his grandfather turned around, the little child pointed a finger and says, This is the Zayda. This is where he is. In other words, the human being and the identity of the person is not the hands or the finger or this part or that part. It's not the soul and it's not the body and it's not the soul and the body together, but it became one single absolute identity. And the Nishama, the soul, is the energy force within that identity and the body is a tangible part of that identity but it's one single identity and this is the true form of oneness where the body loses its own personal independent identity it's no longer identified as something independent something separate that's when it's the body is on a table where people are examining it in a, in a laboratory but when this body is part of a human being it's identified as the human being. This is part of the human identity. So this is what it means that when you have two things. One is the Ika. One is the primary thing. And one is the tougher. One is secondary. The secondary loses its own personal identity and it becomes part.
part of and part of parcel of the major thing. In other words, it's identified by the major thing. So this is the same thing with everything in creation. The chair has its personal identity, which is the physical features. Then it has the godliness within it. And that identity is so much greater. And that's the eco, that's the more important part of this unit, that the personal identity is completely lost. So therefore the chair is no longer identified as chair, but its true identity is its part and parcel of the godliness that's within it. But this is the tangible part of that godly energy. So this is the deeper meaning, what we say that God is one, and there's no other identity, no other entity besides God. It means there's no other true identity besides God, because the real identity of the physical aspect of this creation is actually the godliness with it, which is in it. And not only the creation as a whole, but every single detail in creation has this godly identity. And this is what it becomes. It loses its own personal independent identification. To understand this even further, on an even deeper level, how the physical world doesn't have its own identity, its true identity is the godliness which is within it, is based on the fact that we discussed before the world is totally dependent upon God. That without the godly energy, the physical would cease to exist. There's a general principle that when one thing is dependent upon something else, then the truth is not the thing itself, but that which it's dependent upon. The judge, for example, sends a message to someone and tells this person he must appear in court on this day. So even though the messenger gives over the message, tells the person he must be in court, he must appear on this day, but he's not the one who truly has authority, because the only reason why he can say this and why he can give the message and why his words have any kind of effect is because he's being sent by the judge. So the true authority is the one that's sending him, who he's dependent upon. Without the judge behind him, he's worthless. Or the analogy which we gave in one of the previous lessons, the child who's by nature sadistic, and you hypnotize that child to conduct himself in a positive way, that's not considered a true change in the child. Why? Being that the change in the child is totally dependent upon the hypnosis, so the change is not a true change. That means the child, in essence, remained whatever he was before, with the same bad and sadistic personality. The change that takes place is not coming from him, but from something else. So he, in essence, didn't change. And the truth is that it's the hypnosis that's functioning in this way, not the child. So there's a general principle that when something changes or something is dependent, when A is dependent upon B, then its true identity is B, not really A. Therefore, being that the world, the chair and the tree and the cow, is totally dependent upon the godly energy that's in it, therefore its true identity is not itself, but the godliness which is responsible for its existence. Because this means that in its own merit, it would be non-existent. Why is it existing? Because of the godly energy that's within it. 
And therefore, its true existence, its true identity is not itself, but the godly energy that's within it. So there's even more than in the case of the, the analogy of the body and soul. Because in that analogy, true, the body loses its identity, and it becomes part and parcel of the soul. It becomes the identity, the human, the human identity here. It doesn't have its own personal identity. But the soul activates the body, doesn't create it. In the case of the godly energy and the physical object, it's a step further. The physical object, its entire existence is totally dependent upon that godly energy. And therefore its true identity is not what it is, but the godly energy that's within it. So with this we conclude... What does it mean when we say, Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekein Hashem Echot, God is one. It means God and the world are one. It's one single identity. The world does not have its own independent identity. Because the world in its own merit is a non-existent entity. It doesn't exist. And its only existence is because of the godly energy that's within it. Constantly. Therefore, its true identity is the godliness within it. And this is also... The deeper meaning of a verse which is found in the Torah, and we repeat this many times in our prayers and davening, where we say, Ein od movado. There's nothing else besides God. Literally, this means there's nothing else. There's no other God. There's no other authority. There's no other power that controls the world besides God. But according to this, it means, no, there's no other true entity. There's no other identity besides God. And the true identity of everything in creation is the godliness that's within it. And therefore, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echod. God and the world are actually one.